You're listening to KHOL. This is a special bonus episode of Jackson Unpacked, our weekly podcast on news, music, and culture in Jackson Hole and the Mountain West. I'm news director Kyle Mackey. Over the past several months, KHOL has been part of a collaborative reporting project between the Solutions Journalism Network and Rocky Mountain Community Radio, highlighting affordable housing solutions across the Mountain West. The theory of Solutions Journalism is that it aims to focus on how people are trying to solve problems rather than just stewing on the problem itself. As part of this project, the KHOL team has reported on Jackson's down payment assistance pilot program, vacancy taxes, and more. We've also heard from reporters in places like Telluride, Moab, and Crested Butte about how communities are tackling housing crises around our region. Today, we'll hear the last four stories in this series, heading first to Southwest Colorado. With rents at mobile home parks rising across the Mountain West, some residents are taking matters into their own hands to keep prices down. One park in Durango, Colorado was purchased by residents earlier this year and is being run as a co-op. Now, other communities are considering emulating that model. Lucas Brady-Woods of KSJD in Cortez reports. Mobile home or manufactured home communities historically have served as an important source of low to middle income housing across the West. But these days, residents of these communities are often subject to rent increases and buyouts without much protection. And in some cases, that means park residents are being displaced. Lisa Bloomquist is the executive director of Homes Fund, a nonprofit housing organization that works with some mobile home parks in southwest Colorado. When rent in these communities are going up, you know, 40 percent a year, uh, people that it's just what people are having to pay or else they're getting foreclosed on and, and giving up their house entirely. But a number of manufactured home communities have found a way to counteract this trend by becoming their own landlords. In Colorado, a state law that was passed back in 2019 gives residents at a park first dibs on buying their park if it goes up for sale. That's exactly how the Animus Riverview Park in Durango was purchased by its residents. The 120-unit park sits on the city's outskirts along the winding Animus River. A sign at the entrance says, quote, we own it, with an exclamation point. John Egan is the president of the park's board and has lived in the park for about a decade. When the park was purchased by corporate owners back in 2016, rents started to increase at a rate that just wasn't sustainable for some community members. There are many people who have lived here 20, 30 years who would have ultimately been driven out of the park just because of the uh, continuing rent increases. That's one reason why Egan and other residents worked together to buy the park from the corporate owner earlier this year. Now, the park is a co-op. That means it's being run by a resident-elected board. And the board has a mandate keep prices affordable for residents and make sure the purchase of the park doesn't result in residents having to leave. The board is also made up of people who actually live in the park, like Egan. That creates both buy-in from the community and accountability for how the park is run. The community aspect of this is, is essential. Our residents are really taking pride in the property. It's getting cleaned up. Uh, people know each other now. People have a certain kind of respect for the property and are, are proud of it. But getting residents organized and finding the money to buy a manufactured home park is by no means simple. George Cheney lives about 40 miles to the west of Durango in Montezuma County. He's looking into how the co-op model could work for manufactured home parks there. And he says there are challenges, starting with getting everyone involved in a park on the same page. Well, there 
has to be a sustained effort on the part of a group of people that would include an owner, whether that's an individual or a company or family, whatever. Cheney also says the resident-owned model is not without risks. It could be that a a mobile home park makes that kind of transition to a resident-owned community um, and goes along for a while, and they find that they can't keep costs down as they hoped. Costs to purchase and maintain a park are usually too high for residents to afford on their own. Animus View's price tag, for example, was $14 million. That's why financial partners are a big part of the process. Lisa Bloomquist's organization, Homes Fund, was one of a number of organizations that helped Animus View residents with funding for the initial purchase. But those loans have to be paid back somehow, and repayment costs can translate into higher rent costs in the short term. Here's Bloomquist again. Financing $14 million, even with, with favorable terms, you know, it, the, the lot rents did not go down immediately. In fact, when the residents first formed the co-op, rents went up. But Bloomquist also says she's confident they will go down over time. For Animus View Board President John Egan, though, the results are worth the expenses and coordination required to make the resident-owned model work. And for other parks that are considering pursuing a similar model, Egan has a few words of advice. Don't wait. Don't wait a minute. Get organized now. Make the connections you need to make. Be ready to move the minute uh, that park comes up for sale. But despite its limitations, the model does seem to be catching on in other parts of Colorado. Resident-owned parks have already established themselves in communities from Colorado Springs to Leadville. For Rocky Mountain Community Radio, I'm Lucas Brady-Woods. When the town of Crested Butte declared a housing emergency last summer, it opened the door to new and unique solutions. The first action item on the list was to purchase a local bed and breakfast that was then converted into housing for seasonal workers. Converting hotels to create housing isn't new, but it is a growing trend in rural mountain communities. Stephanie Maltrich reports for KBUT in Crested Butte. On June 7th, the town of Crested Butte declared a local disaster emergency in response to the affordable housing crisis. It was the first of its kind among mountain communities in the West, where shortages continue to put stress on local workforces. Declaring a housing emergency allowed for a creative housing solution. The Ruby is a former bed and breakfast. It's a six unit bed and breakfast. They're actually really nice rooms, uh, queen size beds with their own private bathrooms, but they have a shared kitchen. And that shared kitchen sort of convinced us that this would be perfect for a seasonal housing program. Troy Russ, Crested Butte's Community Development Director, says the town looked into purchasing the Ruby prior to declaring an emergency order. But they quickly realized local zoning regulations would make it a challenge. Right now, this is in the tourist zone district. The congregate housing wasn't allowed at the time, so we wanted to get this going. So the emergency order allowed us to work with the housing authority to start occupying it. The town will now clean up the zoning and go formally through our Board of Zoning and Architecture approval this spring to get it formally occupied. Willa Williford is a workforce and affordable housing consultant based in Crested Butte. 
She's worked in rural and resort communities across the Mountain West for about six years. Over the past year, Williford has seen a surge in hotel conversions. One of the things I love about these motel conversions is that you can effectuate them quickly and they're environmentally conscious. So you're just repurposing an asset that exists and with how expensive labor and construction materials are and everything it takes to get something new built, this is a really elegant solution. While Williford commends the idea, she also sees zoning as one of the biggest roadblocks. These motels exist in zones that were commercial or intended for tourism. And so when they're switching to a long-term rental, the underlying zoning may not allow that. Could we be more flexible about the zoning? Do we really need everything to be zoned to prohibit residential use? Hotel conversions can also be costly if buildings need extensive renovations. In these cases, Williford says it's hard to keep the rental prices affordable. Cities and counties aren't the only entities purchasing hotels to convert into housing. In Bozeman, Montana, Brian Geyer is the housing director for the Human Resource Development Council, a nonprofit that provides a variety of assistance programs to people living in southwest Montana. Geyer says the housing outlook in the surrounding area is dire to say the least, and HRDC realized they need to do something different in response to the post-pandemic housing issues. And one of the ways that we did respond was we bought a hotel. To comply with city codes, HRDC did not put the hotel to its intended use right away, but still benefited those in need of housing last year. So for the short term, what we did was effectively operate it as a hotel with little to no fees. And so for the first year, it was very useful to us as housing for our over 65 and medically vulnerable population. Crested Butte is one of many mountain communities that is thinking outside the box when it comes to housing. The town of Eagle converted a hotel to micro-apartments in 2018. In June, Summit County signed a one-year lease with a Frisco hotel that will house workers this winter. And Steamboat Springs City Council and Planning Commission just approved two separate hotel projects that will serve as temporary workforce housing. Troy Russ admits the dormitory-style living is not for everyone. Residents of the Ruby are required to agree to basic rules, such as no overnight guests, no drugs, and no Super Bowl-like parties in the living room. And some people see these rules as inconvenient. It's also a drop in the bucket, providing six bedrooms compared to the hundreds that are needed. Yet, Russ sees the Ruby as one solution to the housing crisis that more than ever requires a quiver of solutions. We just recognize that building your way out of it is not necessarily the only way you can address it. So we have a number of things. And fortunately, this bed and breakfast came online. We had the resources to buy it, and maybe it'll provide housing without adding impact on our community. Seasonal restaurant workers started moving into the Ruby on August 1st. And as of mid-October, the seven rooms were fully occupied for the winter season. For KBUT and Rocky Mountain Community Radio, I'm Stephanie Maltrich. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Jackson Unpacked from KHOL. I'm News Director Kyle Mackey. 
And this is a special bonus episode of our weekly podcast featuring reporting and interviews on news, music, and culture in Jackson Hole and the Mountain West. Today, we're hearing the final stories from our 2021 reporting project with the Solutions Journalism Network and Rocky Mountain Community Radio, highlighting affordable housing solutions across the Mountain West. Coming up next, Montezuma County, Colorado, has just one shelter serving people experiencing homelessness. KSJD's Sophia Stewart-Rossi reports on how the shelter fits into the region's complicated housing crisis as the cost of living continues to skyrocket. It's a fall chilly Friday night in Cortez, Colorado, and the Bridge Shelter has just opened up at six in the evening. (laughs) The Bridge Shelter is the only facility within 40 miles that offers sheltering for people experiencing homelessness. And they're a quote, seasonal shelter, which means they're only open during mid-October till the end of April. The facility can hold up to 41 individuals during the night, Benjamin Harris is the executive director of The Bridge. It was started many years ago by a brave group of volunteers who were tired of seeing people freeze to death in the wintertime in the park. And they started in the jail. After moving through various locations, The Bridge has called a 2019 built facility home. As people are checking in for the night, you can see their relief that they'll have a warm bed to sleep on tonight and a homemade meal for dinner and breakfast when they wake up. Well, people have to survive. That's what we're here for. But there are limitations to what the bridge shelter can do to help people survive in a crisis. According to Harris, low funding causes the shelter to have very limited open hours. For instance, after checking in for the night, people have to check out by 8 the following morning and the bridge shelter cannot bring in families into their facility because they accept sexual assault offenders, leaving some families stranded in their cars, on the streets, or in encampments. Justin Norton moved to Cortez six years ago with his wife and kids. They rented a home in a duplex, and Norton says they always paid their rent, even if it sometimes was a bit late. And then one day, Norton says, the landlord just didn't want to work with his family anymore and evicted them. And I just went into this deepest, darkest pit of despair. Norton's family was living out of their car or hotels, and Norton says social services were threatening to take his kids away from him because they didn't have stable housing. In fact, Norton's family was split apart as the threats became reality and his kids were removed by authorities and it shattered him and his wife where all hope was lost. Kelly Willis, the executive director of the Pinion Project here in Montezuma County, says these family situations have been increasing over the last couple of years. Pinion has done emergency assistance for many years, but the last two or three years I I have been like over my head in housing issues. The Pinion Project is a nonprofit organization that provides services to thousands of families and children in southwest Colorado. And in the past, they could provide affordable housing to families experiencing homelessness. But now there just aren't enough houses that are available to be rented in the first place, affordable or not. We literally have no options for families right now. Um, And it's really hard to tell them that. Mm -hmm. And for individuals throughout our community, and you can see the signs of homelessness that we didn't have previously. 
Willis says the bridge shelter is helping folks that are in crisis and need a place to land for a night out of the cold weather. But really helping individuals and families experiencing homelessness due to the housing crisis has to include effective and supportive services like case management. Services Norton and his wife needed in order to help them get out of homelessness and get their kids back. It's so big that it, yeah, it doesn't matter how hard you try, you ain't getting out of it unless somebody's there willing to help you. As the number of people experiencing homelessness is increasing due to the housing crisis, the Bridge Shelter will continue to provide warm beds, food, and showers for people who are in crisis during their very limited open hours. And with more funding to the shelter, more can be done, like being open all year round. Benjamin Harris, the executive director of the Bridge Shelter, says, There's a lot of hurt going on out there. And having compassion and respect for people experiencing homelessness is a step forward in the complicated and long-awaited solution to the housing crisis here in Montezuma County. For Rocky Mountain Community Radio in Cortez, Colorado, I'm Sophia Stewart-Rossi. Our final story today takes us to Durango's Fort Lewis College, which has seen one of the largest increases in their freshman class size in years. That's putting a strain on campus student housing. It also comes at a time when the college is trying to tackle workforce housing issues. Now, officials are turning to several possible solutions to create housing for both students and college staff. Sarah Flower reports for KSUT in Ignacio. It's like definitely, you know, find like the access to housing, but it's like even when you do... Students at Fort Lewis College voice their concerns to the administration and local elected officials about housing issues on and off campus, a topic the college says has been on the forefront of their agenda. Steve Schwartz is the chief operating officer and vice president for finance and administration at the college. He says prior to COVID, the college hired a firm to do a demand study to assess affordable housing needs for faculty, staff, and students. That project was halted due to the pandemic. Now, Fort Lewis is picking up right where they left off. As part of Phase 1, they've hired Project Moxie, the same affordable housing company the city of Durango is using. Schwartz says they're in the process of looking at how to get out of this housing crisis. We've come up with a kind of a three-pronged solution. One would be to construct faculty staff housing on campus. Another one would be to enter into a, a mortgage assistance program. And then the third one, which I think is actually the most exciting one, from my perspective, is certainly the solution that is unique, maybe, in small mountain communities is working with our regional partners to develop a solution. Those regional partners include the city of Durango, Durango 9R School District, and La Plata County. Schwartz feels strongly that this housing dilemma is not one that the college can solve alone. Instead of reinventing the wheel, Schwartz says that the college is looking at different programs across the country that have worked at other higher education institutions, like Colorado University and their mortgage assistance program. 
Jen Lopez, president of Project Moxie, is working with faculty to assess their needs and hear ideas around what would work best for them. I have a faculty advisory group that I meet with that's been guiding the process. This was a, what we consider a phase one, just understanding sort of the landscape of what's happening and how the challenges around housing for the college, how it's being experienced in the community, but also the opportunities. So yes, we have a problem. What are some of the solutions directly for the college and directly for the community? And mostly, how do we start leveraging resources across the community? Part of that leverage for Fort Lewis College is building on land that they already have. Schwartz explains ideas that the college has that would be more viable for the future of the institution. Longer term, what we're looking at is creating more apartment living on campus because that's really, really where we're seeing the need on campus. We believe that we have enough residence hall stock is where our freshmen live. But it's really our upperclassmen that are now coming back and saying, hey, I want to live on campus. In the past, those students many times would have preferred to live in town. Now with the the tightness in town in terms of housing availability, they've come back and said, you know, we really want to live on campus. But we're a little behind the eight ball in terms of building that capacity. So we've identified plots of land where we can build apartment complexes kind of on the east side of campus. That is our next step, and we're actually going to be starting to move on that into the the spring semester. This semester, the college is renting out over 100 units at a La Quinta Inn hotel and has roughly 60 units at 1304 apartments in town. Fort Lewis is also entering phase two of the process, which is hiring a college representative that would be the interface between Fort Lewis and the developer, which Schwartz is hopeful they will hire by the end of the year. The end goal is, I would like to say, within 18 to 24 months period, we would actually have something that would be habitable. In between there, you'd see it coming out of the ground and, you know, working through it. Big challenge is going to be just working out the contractual aspects of this. Reporting for KSUT News, I'm Sarah Flower. That's it for today on Jackson Unpacked. Original music for the show is by the local band Strombucket. Subscribe now to Jackson Unpacked on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll be back with new episodes of the show in the new year. I'm Kyle Mackey, and this is KHOL Jackson.